Hello and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name is John McGowan and I'm joined by our regular panel of Anne Cook. Hello. Angela Gilchrist. Hi there. And Rachel Terry. Hello. First of all, Anne, where, where are we recording from today? Well, we're sitting in our rather, in the, our rather nice offices in a lovely manor house. Uh, outside Tunbridge Wells in the countryside. We're looking out the window. I can see a blackbird and some rabbits. But we're not going to be here very long because we're very excited to be moving soon right into the centre of Tunbridge Wells. So we'll be uh, hitting the town in our lunch breaks. (laughs) Yes, well, we just spend our entire time going out for coffee and lunch. (laughs) Is it palatial? I don't know. We seem to have reached the slightly less palatial end of the building. Okay, today's episode is titled, Does Poverty Harm Your Mental Health? Now, the effects of poverty, austerity and inequality have been discussed quite a bit over the last few years in all sorts of ways. We've been in a climate of austerity and public sector savings on the back of a recession. Our discussion today is prompted by two things, though. The first is some recent coverage of a forthcoming book from a London School of Economics group involving Lord Layard, and titled The Origins of Happiness, quite a a long-term research agenda for Lord Laird, who's been involved in many such initiatives. This book, of which we've seen a kind of early advance copy, offers an analysis of the reasons why some people are happier than others. Uh, One of the ways it's made an impression in our corner of the firmament, though, which is specifically around mental health, is by suggesting that poverty, while it plays a role in happiness, is perhaps much less important than many people think. It's also raised a few eyebrows, including a letter in yesterday's Guardian and a letter in The Independent as well, uh, suggesting that mental health problems are actually a very significant reason for unhappiness by themselves. So you, you may be unhappy because you're mentally un, mentally unwell or have a mental health problem. Now this stands in contrast to a number of other views and in particular uh, another fairly recent report that we've wanted to discuss for some time from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. This one is authored by Iris Elliott, offers what may be a less surprising conclusion to many of us that poverty and inequality are actually very significant in the development of mental health problems. So I think what we're going to do is just try and dive into these and just tease apart some of the claims and some of the measures and some of the implications of these two different reports. So I'm going to fling it over to the panel and go to you, Angela, first. Could you just give us a little bit of background on this? I'm trying to say what's going on with these kind of contrary claims, but could you perhaps initially just orientate us to this report from the LSE group? Yes, I'll try. Um, what I would first like to say about the LSE report is that it, it's looking at well-being as a whole. It does... I wouldn't want to convey the impression that it's an unsophisticated report because I don't think that is true. But I would say that it is worrying from the point of view of mental health, but we'll get into that as we as we discuss. It takes the concept of have happiness in a in a single measure of life satisfaction for adults and emotional well-being for children. That is a very interesting way of looking at things, and this report does give us lots of interesting information about the things that impinge on our well-being. Its big problem, though, is that it separates out the factors that may well impinge on our mental health. But it does suggest that mental health is the biggest single predictor of happiness, which is interesting. 
Well, I think we have to be a bit careful with keep using this term happiness because they are quite clear that it's life satisfaction that they're looking mm. at, actually not happiness because happiness is very individual and hard to define. I think it's actually life satisfaction that they're looking at, which you said. Mm. Yeah, I think happiness in itself is a very subjective mm. kind of measure, isn't it? The, you know, what constitutes happiness is going to be very different for different individuals. But I do, I do think this report teases out some of the things that tend to make people happy overall. So from that point of view, it's useful. Yes, I think it's useful from a number of points of view, actually. I think it's really um, helpful to focus the attention of politicians, because this is going to be a politically um, important report, I think, to uh, focus uh, politicians' attention on well-being and not just on things like economic growth, which is what people traditionally talk about. So I think it's really welcome. I think the, uh, the, the focus on mental health is really welcome as well because you know, this is something it's traditionally thought of as a kind of Cinderella topic that, that politicians don't think about it nearly enough. Mental health services only have about 5% of the NHS spend on them. And um, this report's really clear on emphasising that, isn't it? That yeah. there should be much more money spent on mental health services. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's really, really welcome, as is the kind of uh, public health angle that they take, thinking about prevention, mm. thinking about getting into schools, thinking about childhood well-being and t- taking away from this sole focus. I mean, uh, sole focus on results as, as the mother of two children, I think that's a really, really welcome development. Um, but there are some problems with it, I think, and you indicated some of those. Um, I think one of them is things are a bit different if you're poor you know they talk about the fact that overall income is not correlated with happiness or their measure of satisfaction as you say but I think that's very very different if you're very poor and uh, it did seem um, that they they haven't really looked at the implications for the very poorest people in society and I think to to just kind of there's a danger of kind of writing those people off uh, in this in the same sense you know sort of almost like animals sacrificing the vulnerable individuals for the good of the herd and I, uh, yeah, I think there are big ethical issues about that. Mm. Does money not make you happier? They, they seem to claim it doesn't. I mean I've been living in hope that if I just had a bit more money in a kind of new Maserati approaching my 50th birthday I'd be a significantly happier, <laughs> significantly happier individual. I mean, Possibly I th- slightly crushing to be told. No. I think that the way that this report has been written up has done it a disservice, actually, because reading it myself, going back to the original report, I didn't really take the message that um, poverty doesn't impact on life satisfaction or happiness. In fact, there was quite a few direct quotes that I've taken from the report which go against that. So, for example, things like, an ethos of mutual respect and care is is crucial for a happy society. Such an ethos would be highly correlated with greater equality of income. People are not happy when there is distrust, social dislocation, oppression, inequality. So for me, there was things within the report which did highlight the problems with poverty and inequality. It's just that it wasn't given a main emphasis. I mean, I think it goes without saying that poverty and distress are connected. The report also did say that one of the downsides is that the data that they've got is very individual focused and the way that they have been able to analyse the data is very much looking at factors in isolation rather than being able to look at the interrelationships between the factors. So they do acknowledge that to some extent. Unfortunately, I think that means the, the message about the relationship between poverty and mental health 
gets lost a bit. I, I, I think that I think that is a, a significant flaw of this report that the interrelationships between factors is is not studied. So I think that the limitations of the research methodology need to be made clear to the public. Mm. You know, I, I would worry about this being an influential document as far as mental health is concerned. As some of our listeners may know that Lord Layard's recommendations lay behind the formation of the IAPT programmes and it's so Improving on. access to psychological therapies. Yes, which of course have been a, a, a wonderful thing in many respects, but they've also been highly criticised for their emphasis on you know, trying to get people back to work rather than looking at mental well-being as being an aim in itself. But I think that if we sort of... There are areas to critique this report, like you say, but there's also massively positive messages, like what Anne was saying at the beginning, and um, I think that if we are discrediting this, this whole report, um, that would be a real shame, because I think that overall it does a lot for arguing for much more consideration of, of well-being, that we should be enhancing life satisfaction, of putting more money into mental health services. So I think if we're just giving a negative message about the report, that is a massive shame, and it could be, our, it could be used for our benefit. I, I would agree. As I said at the beginning, I think there's a great deal in this report report that's of value but we need to be careful how the information in it is used and interpreted. Yeah I I agree I mean I started by saying what Mm. I really like about it but to me it has one kind of fatal flaw if you like and it uh, did seem there was a bit of a misunderstanding of the nature nature of mental illness in the sense that it's their statements like um, the biggest cause of misery is mental illness well, mental illness doesn't arise in a vacuum, and also mental illness is, is it's a name for a particular sort of human emotion. It's not something special that only experts can diagnose and have, you have to have a technical treatment for. Mental illness is a name that we use to talk about when our emotions get so strong that they threatened to become overwhelming mm-hmm. it's not a different thing so in a way that could be seen as quite tautological we're saying that severe misery causes severe misery mm-hmm. and I think that there's a real danger there but I mean that that misapprehension is actually shared by a lot of people in society mm-hmm. by psychologists it, it does make us very uncomfortable I think to think that what's a rather simplistic assumption might be driving a whole policy mm-hmm. and of course that could be a very welcome message for you know this idea that you know it's mental illness something going wrong in people's brains that needs a kind of technical fix that could be a quite welcome message for our current government because it you know if, if it's nothing to do with the events and circumstances of people's lives and just to do with their brains then you know it gets them off the hook both in terms of what might have led to that misery and depression mm-hmm. or anxiety and also in terms of you know changing society such that uh, things improve because it's all down to individual therapy. Yeah. But, uh, just to, to pick up a couple of practical things before just diving into that, and just to say that um, going back to what you said, Rachel, there was some coverage of this which may have uh, perhaps pushed the message, you know, kind of poverty doesn't matter, uh, you know, a, a, a little bit, um, or suggesting that the LSE group is claiming that poverty doesn't matter. We'll link to a piece in The Guardian on our blog site. The, the report itself in the form of a book isn't out yet, but we're very grateful to the LSE 
for sending us uh, an advanced PDF copy to discuss. We only got that yesterday, so we're, we, we've all had a chance to at least look at it. We will offer also provide a link on the blog site to somewhere where you can ask for a copy of it, because they are they do seem to be making some PDF copies available for it. it was a, there's a, a web page for some uh, talks that they were giving about it, the main contributors were, were giving about it the other day. But since the with the initial coverage, I think most of the reaction has been based on this initial coverage, and we've had you know I say letters to the papers, a group that we have some connection with, Psychologists Against Austerity. They've already written something that's actually been a bit critical about it, you know about it, and I think actually what they are picking up on Anne is what you're saying about this notion of well yeah mental mental illness or mental ill health can lead to unhappiness, but. The, the actual detail about how mental ill health arises itself. There is some coverage of it, but it's quite, it seems to me anyway, on a first read, quite small. It feels like it just kind of exists there yeah. in some it way. Exists a apart, little bit decontextualised. It exists yeah. apart from life circumstances, which yeah. I think mm-hmm. is the fatal flaw. The, yes, because mental, mental health problems arise in the context of the events and circumstances yes. of our lives. And I... I didn't. See, I haven't seen that so far in what I've been read, and I think that's yes. a very, very central thing. Yes. Well, what's the? I mean, in some ways, this is, <coughs> in terms of Lord Layard's own pretty extensive contribution to public policy. I think this is probably reflective of a stance that has lasted for a number of years, really decades, actually. Um, the sense that there are unaddressed mental health problems in society, and that there are means and methods which we underinvest in, but which can make a difference to those. So we have the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies Initiative, and. Again, Again, that kind of copped some criticism too, actually, because it was it was seen as being by in, in some quarters. I have to say, I was not uncritical of it myself at points as being you know you're you're treating the mental health problem rather than what you know what might underlie rates of rates of mental health problems. Mm. You're looking at the individual rather than other rather than other factors. So what's the you've started talking about this and what's the kind of evidence that you know, evidence to the contrary. Because the other report that we're thinking about, the other report that we have in front of us, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation report, mm. I mean, it starts off absolutely clear. Poverty increases the risk of mental health problems. That's the first line. Yeah, I think I think there's good, good evidence of that. There's also good evidence that if you look globally, inequality is really important, not necessarily only absolute poverty, but the rates of inequality in a society pretty much track the rates of, or the other way around, the rates of mental health problems pretty much track the levels of inequality. So I think that that's quite clear. And the other thing, I, sp- I suppose my other, my, other wor- my other worry about the kind of addressing it all, putting all our eggs in the basket of individual therapy is just the scale of stuff that would be needed. And there's never, ever going to be enough therapists to go around to, to meet the need. It's a bit like... Uh, trying to mop the floor while leaving the tap running um, or uh, yeah there's just just not going to be enough not to say that we shouldn't try it I mean we're all therapists we all are part you know wanting to help people provide therapy but I do worry about this idea that that's the answer to the problem of mental health problems. I mean I didn't have that take-home message when I read the LSE report. I had the take-home message that actually what we need to do is change our policy-making decisions from away from money Mm. and austerity and instead focus on increasing people's life satisfaction. Mm. So we should be focusing on making people have more fulfilling, positive lives in general, broadly. We should be taking a health promotion 
position in all our policy making decisions rather than putting everything into therapy or, or whatever. So I, I personally thought the take home message from the LSE report was very different to perhaps how how the others in this group well, have taken it. No, Rachel, I, I agree with you, you know, and I, and I do think that on the whole it, it sends out a very good and positive message. Yeah. And, I th- and I think it, you know, it's laudable as well that it's taking it out of the arena of just looking at GDP mm. and looking more broadly mm. at the factors that impinge on, on life satisfaction. Mm. But as I say, I do think it has, it, it, you know, it, its treatment of the mental health situation is worrying. And that, I suspect, is because there aren't any psychologists involved in this project. Yeah, I wasn't going to say that. You know, <laughs> well, I'm sorry, you know, nobody's thought about the psychology of this. It's about the economics or the, 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 the sort of broader... Like, you know, it's mentioning work and all of the things and relationships and all of the things that impinge on our happiness. But the problem, as, as we've already stated, is that mental health problems are seen as something that exists separately from our circumstances so they're just diseases that can be targeted through therapy and we needn't worry about changing the bigger matrix that that gives rise to them. I wonder if one of the issues is in terms of an outcome measure I'm I'm not 100% sure what to make of the life satisfaction outcome measure I mean in some ways there's an appealing simplicity to it. Do you want to say what it is? Um, what's the phrase exactly? It's it's asking people about the degree to which they're satisfied with their lives. Yeah. Mm. And in some way that there is an appealing simplicity to that. In some ways, a sort of part of me thinks, God, it's got to be kind of a bit more complicated than that, hasn't it? But also, it's something separate. It's something separate from mental health. It is outcomes. It it isn't the same thing. So they can say empirical work, and they do talk about you know, um, is it Wilkinson? Pick at the spirit, the spirit mm-hmm. level. Um, and they t- do talk a little bit about that. They look at it very briefly in the context of inequality specifically. They do say, but empirical work on the effects of inequality on life satisfaction has yielded very mixed results. Many studies have failed to find any effect. So they clearly are dubious about the effects of inequality on life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing there's other people who might read that evidence base, even in terms of life satisfaction, somewhat differently. But I think we're also talking about something else. We're talking about psychiatric morbidity, rates of mental health problems, which I think we're suggesting. And this other report from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation actually gives a very thorough analysis of the ways in which poverty and inequality may actually be, or are, you know, quite profoundly related to mental health yeah. outcomes. And that's the empirical angle that uh, Angela was alluding to, the kind of psychological, theoretical angle as well, because psychology has a lot to say about the possible mechanisms by which being one of the very, very poor in society could lead to both lack of well-being and also mental health problems. I would argue that those two are two sides of the same coin. The reports seem to be seeing them as different, and that's one of the things I possibly challenge. Mm. But anyway, in terms of psychological mechanisms, there's lots of things. There's things like uh, what we know about scarcity. You know, when when something is in very scarce supply, that that's what preoccupies us. When we haven't got enough to eat, we think about food all the time. Those kind of things. There's mm. there's stuff about agency and how when we're not able to affect our surroundings uh, that has a very detrimental effect so there's a whole load of psychological theory as well I think that we have to look at not just empirical data because what I'm just trying to think how about how 
issues of poverty kind of shake out in terms of people's understanding of mental health issues because at the moment and indeed we've discussed this many times and written about it many of us many times as well is we're, we're currently being I think in several quarters being given some quite strong messages about mental health and about mental health as something that can happen to anybody it can absolutely happen to anybody and in some ways I can see the rationale of that you're having a mental health problem you don't have to be, you know, fit a stereotype or a stereotype of somebody who's perhaps, you know, not able to deal with the stresses of your own life. So it can happen to anyone. And in some ways that's a laudable message, but it also seems to risk being in ways a distorting message. Go on. Perhaps these things may be more likely to happen to you if you're poor, along with many other health well, issues. Well, that is true. It's undoubtedly true, but it... We can't minimise the suffering of people who've got enough economically, but they are still kind of, you know, overcome with depression or anxiety or can't function well in the world. Mm. I mean, I've had the privilege of working with some of the richest people in the world and some of the poorest people in the world. Mm. I've worked in private hospitals in very wealthy areas and I've worked with people in squatter camps in Africa. So I've really seen Mm. both ends of the spectrum. I mean, I think we do. We do have something of a mixed message here and it's hard not to look inside people's heads. The example I often give was I was giving a talk at the LSE, in fact, um, <laughs> before the election in 2015. And we, we were talking about mental health problems. Paul Farmer was there from mind and was, I think, partly taking this line about trying to destigmatize things in the sense that, you know, they can happen to anybody. And I was trying to make some points about, about poverty and inequality. And after that, I remember hearing the news coverage in the run-up to the election and I was driving home one night and there was a story about increased suicide rates, especially among middle-aged men. And there was, a, a, again, a story about underinvestment in mental health. By the next night, those stories were together. And in some sense, suicide was something that happened to individuals um, who felt suicidal and the answer was more mental health services. And I suppose that's what gets me into implications. You know, what, what, are, what are the implications of this? Because on one hand, we've got, you know, again, we'll link to this on our site, you know, a pretty thoroughgoing analysis of the role of poverty and inequality in mental health problems. And we, on the other hand, have an interesting report, but one that seems to s- place mental health problems just in a slightly more separate place with services as the answer so what what is what are the implications of this for me the implications are that it needs to be a multi-pronged approach so there needs to be massively increased spending on mental health services there needs to be a shift away in policy thinking from financial consideration solely onto consideration of health promotion broadly mental health promotion and people's well-being and happiness and there needs to be a massive tackling of inequality within society and poverty. So I think it needs to be multi-factored, and it's not simple. It's not at all, no. I mean, I'd agree with Rachel, it needs a a multi-pronged approach, and we need to kind of get away from the idea that therapy can solve everything. It's certainly a very, very useful tool, of course it is, but it can't solve the, the bigger problems that have given rise to these inequalities that have in turn 
impacted on people's mental health. You know, we really need to be thinking more broadly in terms of public health approaches, in terms of community approaches, in terms of prevention in schools. And, you know, we need to hopefully get to the point where we're all thinking about mental health as something that each one of us has to maintain in the same way as we mm. we have to maintain our physical health. It's almost as if mental health only gets thought about when it's really gone wrong. Yes. You know, we're not talking, we don't encourage people to think about how to maintain it in the same ways as we help people to maintain their physical health through diet and exercise and all of the other things, um, you know, we, we just simply label and stigmatise those unfortunate enough to have mental health problems, put it out there as something that can't possibly affect us, or so most people seem to think. And, you know, there are shades of that in this report. I'm not saying that anybody deliberately intended to be discriminatory, but the idea that mental health is just out there anxiety and depression are just things mm. that occur to people and people who are very different to the norm as it were so they need treating everybody else is all right yes that's what i was going to say i think possibly not a huge amount is going to change as long as we have this idea of mental illnesses as things that just strike people out of the blue Correct. i like your emphasis on mental health and degrees of mental health or lack of it which actually i think maps quite well onto the concept of well-being here but the report sees them as different they're saying that you know lack of well-being is caused by mental illness whereas i would see it much more as we need to think in terms of mental health as something akin to well-being that we have shades of like you were saying mm. Um, and you know, as as long as, and I think as long as we think of of mental illness as this kind of random, scary thing that afflicts certain people, not the rest of us, mm. then we won't talk about it in schools. For example, I mean, I did some research with a trainee here a couple of years ago, looking at in, interviewing teachers about the ex how they talked about mental health in the classroom, and we found that they didn't. They completely avoided the subject because mm -hmm. they were scared of it. They didn't think they had enough expertise. They were worried that the parents would criticise them for talking to the children about these weirdos. It's very, very sad. And, you know, I know I would say this because it's the thing I go on about, but, you know, I think as long as we have this idea of mental illness as separate from the normal run of human experience, we will think of it as something that's only addressable by technical treatments mm. and not by changing the events and circumstances of people's lives that give rise to mm. lack of mental mm. health. I mean, I wonder, two points occur to me just in, in what you're saying. I mean, one is just to go back to my example of suicide rates. And I do think that's potentially quite an instructive one. There are a lot of different ways of seeing suicide rates, not just the underinvestment in mental health services is the cause and greater investment is the solution. I mean, it's not like mental health services necessarily do such a bang-up job with suicidal feelings anyway, particularly. There's lots of reasons why you know they they may not and you know taking away people's responsibility for themselves isn't always the most helpful thing but there's a lot of different ways of seeing that you can see it as you know part of a recession you can see it as being about unemployment skill shortages a changing role of men social epidemics that you know occur in ways which i think we're still catching up with via the you know the internet and the sort of transfer of sort of social and cultural information via that there's a lot of different ways of seeing it i suppose the other thing that i was thinking though goes back to what you were saying Rachel about maybe not seeing it in terms of e economics there's a quote 
from somebody that I never I never met this person I heard them say I never saw who they were but it stayed with me <laughs> for the last 10 years and one of our colleagues was what was showing somebody around the previous building that we were in down the, down the drive and I just remember this person saying to Fergal Jones our colleague who was on the last podcast he just said well I, I prefer I prefer investment to cuts I just thought, oh, God, don't we all? <laughs> really, you know, don't we all? It's so easy to say. Yeah. And in one way, I do think that this LSE group are trying to sort of meet that head on yeah. in one way. They're, they are actually trying. I think that there is a case for looking at that. They're trying to look at what might save money, be cheaper, you know, actually use what is a finite pool, what is a finite pool of resources. Mm. And I do think they deserve some credit for that. I do question a little bit in terms of mental health where they end up and I also hope that the the Joseph Rowntree Foundation report which we haven't talked about so much possibly it's just not so controversial or something mm. I do hope that people will take a chance to have a look at that as, because it, it does offer some really interesting and thorough well a thorough breakdown of the elements as to how the notion of you know inequality and poverty might really flow into mental health problems and it, it brings well, that brought, really brought that alive for I, me I actually. think the most important point in the Joseph Rowntree report for me was that poverty could be both a cause and a consequence mm-hmm. of mental ill health so mm-hmm. it's kind of it is looking at what comes from where. And we're not really seeing that in the LSE report, although, you know, I'd say again, there's lots in that LSE report that's really laudable and I hope people act upon. I mean, the idea, for example, that we, we are, as individuals, we tend to be most unhappy when we are at work, but actually happier than if we don't have work. And it says it says in the report, you know, that there are some implications there for modern management. You know, why why are we unhappy at work? If although we're we're happier than we would be if we were unemployed, obviously, but most of us spend a third of our lives at work, and those are hours that most of us seem to regret spending if we're to believe this report. Also, beats the drum for working mothers, of which we have mm. two. At this, I mean, the phrase "working mothers" seems like something out of my child childhood in the 70s when that was disapproved of but we have a working father as well <laughs> well yes hey you know I, nobody's ever accused me of you know kind of damaging my children's yeah, you know, mental health. It, it says something positive about that and you know so those kind of messages i think are you know actually having a, a good broad look like that there's yeah, lots of positive something like 60 percent of mothers now return to work in the first year of the child's life mm. i mean that's astonishing really compared to how it used to be Mm-hmm. And but it's also showing that mother's mental health mm-hmm. has a profound effect on the emotional well-being of children. Emotional well-being being the measure that this the LSE report mm-hmm. has used in, in children's mm-hmm. well-being. It's shocking, really, when you think how utterly overwhelming your first child can be. <laughs> what a mess we might make of them. But anyway, um, I think we'll have to wind it up there. We've left links to various things that we've talked. We'll leave links to various things that we've talked about on our website. We're currently recording this on Friday. We're hoping to have the podcast up by Sunday. There's just a few final things to say, which is that the best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You can do 
that on iTunes, our iTunes listing. It would be nice to have a few more there. You can actually rate and review it on iTunes as well, though perhaps only if you've got something nice to say. Also, you can find articles about a num- touching on a number of these issues on our blog, uh, Discursive of Tunbridge Wells, and we'll, we'll leave a, a link to that in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at CCCUAPSY, that's A Triple P S Y. And on Facebook, if you look for Canterbury Christchurch University Applied Psychology. We'll be back soon, and thanks for listening.